0: We have been reading Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, whom he dearly loved. He sees himself as their nurturing mother. He sees himself as their directive father. He has commended their faith and shared how he wishes he could visit them. But he can't, because of laws, and somehow, the Satan. But you know who can? Timothy. Timothy. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview in the Scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today. We hear Tim's report. We enter the letter to the Ecclesia of Thessalonica in the third chapter. It is a terrible decision for a chapter break because Paul is in mid-thought. You shouldn't start a chapter with the word therefore, but here we are. Paul ends chapter two by explaining how he longs to see them again, but he couldn't. Chapter three, verse one. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. When Luke covered this history of Paul being rejoined by Silas and Timothy in Athens, he didn't mention Paul sending Timothy back to Macedonia. Sometimes historians will omit secondary character actions when telling the larger story, and this seems to be the case here. But it appears that before they reached Corinth, Timothy was sent back to encourage the ecclesia and then report back to Paul how things were going in a really tough town to follow Jesus in. And the concerns were twofold. One, people were afflicting believers like the hospitable Jason, all for cooperating with the kingdom of Jesus. And two, the tempter was afoot, a common name for the Satan in intertestamental times. Paul seems to have taught the believers what Jesus said about life, that there would be trouble for his name. Paul views every day in between the resurrection and the return of Jesus as a tribulation for believers to handle the twofold problem of people and the devil. So Timothy went, Timothy is returned, Timothy presents his report. Verse 6. for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Timothy reported back really good news about them, and Paul makes sure to note that he longs to see them again, as was the custom of friendship letters to express the reciprocation of love. And these type of letters also included statements of personal wellness, Only if they knew that the other party was well. Later in life, Paul will often put a prayer for the receivers of the letter at the beginning of the letter. But here, he adds the prayer after he's reflected on their relationship and gives them Tim's positive report. The last line there can be troubling. As we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, I haven't made it in the inflection, but the English translation adds a question mark at the end of that statement. What is lacking in your faith? Why a question mark? I mean, what's the question? Borrowing from verse 9, it starts, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? But then the question loses its structure completely. It was common in Paul's day to thank the gods upon receipt of the letter. And here, the thanksgiving is in the form of a rhetorical question. How can we thank God enough for you? Timothy's report had made Paul happy. It had gladdened his heart. It reaffirmed the love of the Thessalonian congregation for him. And it further stimulated his desire to see them. Paul said they were the ground of his comfort. But it is Yahweh whom Paul thanks. The implication is that he could never thank Yahweh enough. In fact, the language here is deeply personal as Paul's focus intensifies. For example, the pronoun you will appear ten times. And that's underscored by what follows. Day and night we pray most earnestly to see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith. So I guess we need to know what faith means here. And faith here means one's response to God, something that can be deemed inadequate or deficient. The term hysterema what is lacking, was rarely used in the ancient literatures, and it's only used once in the Bible outside of Paul's letters. When it is found in Paul's letters, it's, it often has the sense of inadequacy that can be corrected. Before we get to thinking that Paul believes he has anything to do with fixing these people, we have to read his written prayer. Verse 11 to 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So there's this tension between divine activity and human responsibility. And Paul walks the line in this letter, right? Here, he says, may the Lord increase you, right? It's God's job. But later in 4.10, he's going to urge the brothers to do something. So there's a tension. On the one hand, Paul consistently emphasizes God's grace and initiative, but he never ceases to exhort or command those whom he is writing to to do something. He has imperatives. They just always follow the indicatives of God's love. Now, there is, of course, proper and improper responses to God's love, but the response has no bearing on God's love. So, we can do imperatives out of ought to, and that won't bear any fruit, We can do the imperatives out of trust, and that will bear much fruit. If we live with ought to's, that's going to be a new law. If we live out of trust, there's freedom there. Paul advises that faith can be increased by love and holiness, and he wants them to increase and be completed. And that's the word catartizo, which means to mend mend your faith it's the same word used in mark 1 for what john was doing to fishing nets there are always holes in a fishing net that need to be repaired if the net is in use if your faith is used it's always going to need mending as well there will always be a lack of faith that needs mending until the end now chapter 4 starts with the word finally so he's already closing up his letter verse 1 finally then brothers We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received us, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. So there's that tension again. And Paul even uses the word ought. Now, he does back off of it by saying that they are already doing it. It's the paradox of faith. I trust and follow Yahweh. He powers my work the work I am doing. It keeps going full circle. We cannot be fruitful apart from God, but we also cannot be fruitful from our couches. He continues in verse two. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now let's remember the context here, right? Who's the audience? It's Gentile believers in Greece, or modern Greece. It's Macedonia at the time. And they do not have the benefits of the Jewish law being in their background. They've come out of polytheistic worship with food sacrifices to idols that were representative of their gods. And they have little to no restraint on their moral character, especially in matters of sex. The Roman Empire was a perverse culture, even... According to today's standards, prostitution was very prominent in religion. As some of the gods were worshipped by the use of temple prostitutes. Again, the moral climate in the Roman Empire was poor. Immorality was really a way of life. And thanks to slavery, people had leisure time to indulge in the latest pleasures. The Christian message of you are now holy... Is new to that culture, and it was not easy for new believers to deal with the temptations around them. Not growing up with strict moral law, they had no holiness muscles. It was absolutely fantastic that they had been given righteousness of God, but they didn't know what righteousness even was, let alone to grow into it as a part of their sanctification. Now, Paul gives Gentile converts tons of commands in his letters. To help them frame what righteousness is. And this helps them live up to what they've already obtained through Jesus's work. So you ready for some New Testament commands? Here we go starting in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one." So there's at least four commands here. Uh, One, love one another. Two, love more. Three, live quietly, minding your own business, which doesn't sound like culture war, does it? And then four is work. Now, Paul doesn't expect that they withdraw from society because how could they love from that position? But as they love, they should intend to be inconspicuous, especially in Thessalonica where riots against their message had already occurred. Most of the people in Thessalonica were poor. Maybe there were a few benefactors in the ecclesia, but most of the people were poor. And like many towns, it had its share of unemployment. But the jobs that most often presented themselves was manual labor since the elites despised it. So they should be open to snatching up those jobs so that they can support themselves. Remember, the ecclesia supported each other financially. If you had nothing, someone would share with you. But sometimes it's good to share. That's part of the journey. But you can only share if you have something to share. So work was always a good idea. It shouldn't be avoided for the sake of living quietly. But the overall focus is love. Love and love more. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Paul spoke of hoping to be a part of the mending the Thessalonican believers' faith like a fishing net. Well, how can our faith be mended and who is the mender? It seems important that we're mended, but also that we entrust this to Jesus Practically, Jesus' hands and feet will be your Christian neighbor. But if that neighbor switches it up to be constant ought-tos without trusting the true mender, then what you're involved in is broken. So how do the four commands that Paul gave the Thessalonians translate to our lives today? Could we use a bit more love towards others? Could we live a bit more quietly? Could we work to help others, are those elements that need mended in your faith? Keep on being mended, friends. Thank you for listening. Anachronosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Paul will talk about clouds?